This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm so happy to have you with me as I uncork yet another great story. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And if you only listen to Uncorking a Story as an audio podcast, I want to encourage and invite you to please watch us on YouTube as it's a great way to leave feedback for each episode. And it's a great way to engage with me and other listeners. So I encourage you to please subscribe to our YouTube channel by going to YouTube, searching for Uncorking a Story and hitting that subscribe button. And for you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Now, today on the show, I have an author named Jared Michaud, and he and I have a fascinating conversation about his book, Bright Star, as well as his career as a writer. Now, Jared, as you will hear, is not shy about talking about his Christian faith, and we had a very interesting discussion on how he weaves that into the narrative of Bright Star. One of the things that he stresses is that you can't be too preachy when taking a truth that you believe in and hold very personally. Um and putting it into your work. Now, you don't want your novel to become a long homily or a long sermon, so you really have to be careful here. You know, great authors like you know, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien were masters of doing this in their work. And I'd even argue that, you know, George Lucas did this in the original Star Wars trilogy, not necessarily from a, a pure Christian point of view, but more as a blend of different uh, religions and spiritual practices. Yet he was able to do it without you feeling like you were watching something that was, you know, quote unquote, religious. And it certainly wasn't preachy by any stretches of the imagination. And it's a reminder that, you know, even when we're writing fiction, we leave a bit of ourselves on the page. But we have to remember that we can't put too much of ourselves into each story. I mean, ultimately, our stories are not about us. 
they're about our characters. And, and, you know, I know that sometimes those lines can be blurred. And sometimes people who know us well, who read our work might say things like, you know, I know where you got that from. And uh, sometimes, you know, those narcissists that we all know in our life might even come up to us and say things like, uh, that was about me, wasn't it? Or, or you and you were inspired to write that because of me. Um, you know, probably, probably not, right? Probably not. Um, but that that's just some people's narcissistic tendencies coming through. And, you know, while we all have our own, you know, worldview and, and we may be tempted to share that through our work, we just need to remember that not everybody will share it. Therefore, you know, we have to be really careful not to be too heavy handed because it will alienate some readers. Now, I'm not saying that you have to appease everyone with your work. And if you try to do that, you know, your work will certainly, you know, fall flaw, flaw. That's a great word, Mike. Uh, be dull or uh, it'll fall flat. And if you get too preachy, you know, some people, even even people who agree with you might get tired of what you're writing. So I just want to remind you that my goal with Uncorking a Story is always to try and help make you a better writer. So today's lesson is this. There is a fine line between tipping your hat by weaving your worldview onto your pages and being self-indulgent. So be careful not to get too preachy, you know, kind of like Bono at an award show. Yeah, I don't mean to pick on Bono. I love Bono. I love U2. My favorite band. I've seen them more live than any other band. But, I mean, let's face it. You know, put a microphone in front of the guy. He uh, can't get a little preachy. Uh, but that's enough about... Uh, not enough for me. How's that? Enough for me. Sorry, Bono, if you're listening. I'd love to have you on the show. Uh, but uh, I don't have you on the show today. But I do have Jared Michaud. And here is my conversation with Jared. Jared Michaud is a devoted fiction writer driven by a passion for writing that began before he reached the age of seven. Influenced by literary giants like C.S. Lewis and Orson Scott Card, he discovered the transformative power of storytelling and at age 12 began crafting his first novel. Today, Jared writes from a little house in a little town near Cheyenne, Wyoming, where he lives with his wife and six children. As a Christian with a deep love for the truth and appreciation for the values that underlie Western civilization, he endeavors to create myths that inspire future generations. He joins me today today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his career and latest novel, Bright Star. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jared. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. And I'm curious, Jared, where does your story as a writer begin? Okay, so I guess you'd say I, I kind of had a difficult time growing up. And as often happens, you know, I escaped into my imagination and um, I started creating this world when I was like seven or eight. And by the time I was 12 or 13, I had a very detailed and uh, interesting universe going on in my own head. And I decided I needed to share it with the world. And so I started writing my first book when I was about 12. And that didn't well, let's put it this way. It was a waste of paper, but not a waste of time. That's that's how I learned to write was writing that first book. It was it was a prequel. You know, I, I know if you've uh, if you've watched the Star Wars prequels, it's kind of it kind of damages the story when you have a place that you have to end where you're forcing yourself to end in one spot. So that was the way this was, because it was originally supposed to be the prologue for a book and not a book itself. And so I, I get, you know four years and about 250,000 words in. And I'm like, this is totally unpublishable. I can't do anything with this. 
And I can imagine 250,000 words when you're that young. Well, it sounds like between what, 12 and 16, you're, you're yeah. jamming away at That's this. That's right. Yeah. And I realized it was totally unpublishable. And what I was writing was the prologue to Bright Star. So 20 years later, I picked the story up again. And now I have something that is, I think, pretty good. It's it's but it's going clear back to that world that I created back when I was just a young guy, you know, just real young a kid even. So that's where it all started for me. And now there's a whole lot more that has sort of been pulled into this because what really goes into my writing that I really care about is myth. And and that's sort of where I, what I end up talking about a lot, just because that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, well, but before we jump in there, what so bridge the gap for me from from the time you know twelve to sixteen, you're you're kind of knee mm-hmm. deep into writing this um, uh, saga or epic, if you will. What what, what did you wind up doing, um, you know, with career wise and and school wise? Well, my dad knew I wanted to be a writer, so he said, "Why don't you go to school for journalism so you have something to do to pay the bills between now and then?" And so I went to school. I got an associate's degree in journalism and discovered that the the people in the journalism field and I have very, very different worldviews and <laughs> it did not work out so well. So I got a second associate's in graphic design and then I went started went and started on a four-year degree. And about that time I met my wife and I realized that this four-year degree I was getting didn't take me where I wanted to go for writing because going to college actually damages your creative ability, in my opinion. So I so I quit, and I wound up going through a number of different jobs, worked for a family business for a while, were just cutting up pieces of metal on a water jet cutter, and then a couple of years ago, picked writing back up again. There, You know, there are plenty of other steps in there, but th- that's the critical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, do you feel like you needed to have like a little bit more breathing room in your life and a little bit more life experience before you could seriously pick up writing again? Um, I'm always curious about that. You know, a lot of times we have aspirations to do stuff when we're younger and mm-hmm. we realize that for, for one reason or another, the timing doesn't work out, but then all of a sudden inspiration hits later on. I'm just wondering if you needed to let things marinate or if you needed to have like experiences before you were able to sort of put pen to paper again. Well, you know, I think as, as a very young guy, I could actually tell a pretty good story, but that doesn't mean that there was anything really valuable in the story for people to take out of it. It's like you say, those life experiences do so much for you and giving you perspective, giving you, value to share with other people. So yes, I did need that time in order to have something that was worth saying. But at the same time, I think I could tell an entertaining story even back then. So I, I don't know. Right. Yeah, you had the chops to to do something. But but the question is, you know, did you have something other people would find value in or, or pull value out of um, not, which is not I, to the same degree. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, like I say, you can read a lot of fiction novels and you get a good story out of it, but, but what's really rare is 
well, when I'm writing, there are three things I try to do. Number one is you tell an entertaining story. Number two is you put some part of yourself into the characters, right? And as you get older, that gets easier and better and and you get better at it because you have that experience. So like you say, you have more to share with people. And then the third thing that I try hard to do is to sort of pull some truth out of the world you know, it's like when a painter paints a, a scene that that catches people's eyes. It's like they've grabbed something out of the world that's sort of amazing, and they've put it in front of people where they can actually get a hold of it. And and that's the other thing you try to do. And there was no way I was capable of that at that age. So, yeah. Well, tell if that me answers about your question. Absolutely, absolutely does. I'm curious. Where did you know? You mentioned sort of um, you know really being interested in myth. Um, where, where does the interest in, in myth come from and how does that manifest itself in your writing? Well, okay. So I use the word myth in sort of a Tolkienian sense. And the way he used it was to mean something that is true, that resonates with the people that read what you're writing. And it, it has meaning that goes beyond what's just on the page and and touches something in people that's sort of timeless and a lot of stories in the past that that we really value as people that's how you sort of find the that myth is in the stories that are timeless stories and it looks to me like in the modern day a lot of our myth has sort of been flipped on its head and it's it's well if I could come at it from a little bit of a different angle, when I started a Twitter account for this this universe, uh, there was a guy who posted a tweet. It said, some guys pick one book and make it their whole personality. For me, it's Starship Troopers. And, you know, they're kind of a cute saying, right? But it gets it really gets to the heart of something. And that is that as people, we resonate with stories and the stories that we read take us out into life and show us the way to go. Whether whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, that actually is what we do. And so what matters to me and what I'm trying to contribute to, because I don't have any amazing opinion of myself, just you know, what I'm trying to contribute to is to the set of stories that actually takes us in a good direction, that is actually that actually pulls in that truth from out in the world and distills it down and gives it to people in a way that they can sort of resonate with it and look at it and use it to pull them in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way that maybe, you know, religion may have done um, culturally, you know, generations before. But if you if you if you have any kind of like overt religious overtones in something, you know, a a fair number of people will be like, hey, put on the brakes. This is not for me. But if you could wrap it up in something else. And I think, you know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, I think, you know, he did a very good job at that. Um, You know, it's 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 I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at here? Well, actually, what you say pulls two different things to mind. There's one thing I try really hard not to do, and it goes something like this. Our license to preach in fiction is directly proportional to and less than our ability to tell a good story. 
And people are just totally sick of it because all a lot of the mainstream stuff, the mainstream entertainment is pumping a message into everything. And people just want a good story. They want to escape. They want. But at the same time, if you can get something valuable in there for them at the same time, that's great. But what you don't want to do is preach. And, you know, you were talking about religion. The way I like to say it is something like this. You know, Andrew Breitbart popularized the phrase, uh, politics is downstream of culture. And what that sort of means is that the culture shapes the political playing field. So you can't really have a political conversation about something that isn't culturally acceptable. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm tracking okay, with Okay, so taking that a step further then... If politics is downstream of culture, culture is downstream of faith or downstream of ideology, depending on how you want to, you know, how your mind looks at those terms. But the idea is the ideas that matter to us the most are the things that shape the culture because they shape the way we live. And that's as, you know, culture is sort of a a large scale term, but as people, we live out of a set of ideas. We live out of the things we find important, and that shapes the culture. And myth sits somewhere between faith or ideology and culture, and it points back to that faith that we stand on, and it points forward to lead the way for the culture. So to me, what we're doing, whether it's Game of Thrones or Harry Potter or you know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis's Narnia or any of the other things that have been really popular in the, you know, in the mind of people as far as entertainment goes, those things sort of point back to a set of truths or a set of beliefs, a set of things that we live by, and they point forward and they show people how to live. That makes sense? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally tracking with you. Yeah. So so to me, as as somebody who actually cares about people and cares, wants to to provide something good for my readers, it looks to me like the best service I can give them is to put the preachy stuff away, to tell an engaging, entertaining story, to put some of myself into the story, which is, for example, why the main character has this autism is because that's something that I've experienced. I didn't find a lot of characters where that was something they dealt with. So putting that into the main character was something that was kind kind of came out of my heart. And then at the same time, I try to draw in things from, well, I don't know how much you know about the monomyth, but the monomyth is the idea that there is a story that really resonates with people over time in a more, what would you call it, a more powerful way than just about anything else. And it it takes kind of different forms, but as far as I'm concerned, what it's pointing back to is the life of Christ. And I'm happy to get into that if you want to. But the idea here is that this story has been more attractive to more people over time than about anything else. And when George Lucas put together Star Wars, he very intentionally followed the monomyth. He he followed this story that people resonate with. And that's partly why Star Wars did so well. And we've lost a lot of that because over the past oh, 20 years, Star Wars has kind of been destroyed 
So I think that that's a conversation we could easily spend a couple of hours on because I I feel feel the exact same way. It's like those, you know, those, I guess you'd call them the middle three films um, told one story with a certain set of principles. And then uh, the other six was um, not even by, it's very hard to see the similarities except, except for maybe the fact that seven was a carbon copy of four, but that's again, a story for another time. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you. I agree. Well, and, and I don't know that it is necessarily a story for another time because that's kind of the whole point of this is that our myth's been turned on its head. And a lot of what is out in mainstream entertainment right now, it, it preaches and it doesn't really resonate and it doesn't speak to people and it doesn't give them what they need. And my hope is to do exactly the opposite. It's to just offer people what they what they resonate with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to point to, you know, anything I've seen um, recently that I feel really fulfilled by in in the same way that I was fulfilled by, let's say a star Wars or, or even like an Indiana Jones movie when I was, when I was younger. Right. And we're talking films, not books. um, Yeah. Yeah there's like this inherent goodness. It's like, and I talk about this with my, my, I have a twin brother. We talk about this a lot where, you know, growing up, we, there were clear, you know, good guys, right. There were good guys and there were bad guys. And and sometimes in, in a great scenario, you might have the bad guy, you know, coming around, having a change of heart, finding the goodness inside them and, and redeeming themselves somehow because, you know, redemption was such a big theme. And now it seems like we're, we're, we're rewarding anti-heroes. And as interesting as they might be, right, as interesting as I think Don Draper and Tony Soprano are as characters, they don't have a lot of, you know, you don't want your kid to grow up to be either one of them. Well, that's exactly right. It's they're only interesting because they're not the real story. They're they're a bit of a different flavor. And when you lose the real story and you get off on this tangent, the way our culture seems to have done you kind of lose the plot as a culture too. And tell me we haven't done that. I mean, we don't all agree on why we've lost the plot, but I don't know anybody who doesn't think we're not headed into a worse place than we are and that we're already in a bad place. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious, how do you, how do you reconcile all of this in bright star and, and what can you share with us about it? Absolutely. So well, the only way I can share that is tell, to tell you how I come at it. I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective. And to me, the way this looks is the way Christ lived and the story that he that is his life did more to change the world over 2000 years than any other story that I can think of. I mean, and I've thought about it as much as I know how. I can't think of any other story that has made even even a start on changing things the way his did. So when I looked at this, I went, you know, I don't think that like C.S. Lewis, I have the, I don't think I have the chops to do a straight allegory, especially because we we actually live in a more critical time now than they did then. And people wouldn't enjoy it the same way. So what could I do that was similar to that, but different enough to be interesting to people. And the answer eventually became obvious to me. And it was something along the lines of, how is it that I live my life? What is it that I'm trying to do? 
as a Christian, what Christian originally meant, it was kind of an insult. It meant little Christ. And as a Christian, I'm just following in his footsteps. And that means that when I'm when I'm telling a story, I'm just trying to show what I would do or what somebody like me would do in those circumstances that would be a good thing. And that's actually really complicated because the world is messy and difficult and complicated. But it also gives people a window back into that monomyth in a way because my life hopefully echoes Christ's life in some way. I don't know if that helps, but that's that's how I go at it, you know. No, it, it it absolutely helps. But what I'm curious is how, how do you do it without being preachy? Because I know that's something we talked about earlier. So that's right. that's well, probably the watch out that our people people might hear when they hear that this is a Christian right. story. The, the 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 warning flags might go up. Right. Well, and and I guess what I would say is, <laughs> what was it Gandhi said? Something along the lines of. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. It's it's because when you live something out, it isn't the same as telling people to go do this or telling people to go do that. It's because you pay the price for the decisions you make and you step up and you shoulder the responsibility that's in front of you and you do the things that are the right thing to do as best you can. That's sort of the Christian ideal. And so what you were talking about, good guys and bad guys, what does it make? What is a good, What makes a good guy? Well, they live up to those ideals that we've sort of left by the wayside as best they can. And they don't always do it perfectly because they're human, but they still do their best to live up to those. And that's what I guess I would say is at the core of this, that it's not a case of me telling people what to do or how to live. It's simply a case of if I were confronted with this complicated set of circumstances, what is the right way to handle it? What is the best thing a person could do? What would a good guy actually do if they're a human and they've still got flaws? Right. I think that's at the core of it. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about the the development of of this work and and sort of like where how you were when when you started it and kind of what you learned about yourself along the way as you were writing it and completing it. Got one good anecdote for you. So um, I was I was writing along and I got about halfway through the book, which actually the book ended up being cut in half. Book two is already written. The publisher said, we only want 50,000 words in the first book. So I had to go back and rewrite the first half of the story. But I got, I got halfway through and I was looking at what I had and I'm like, uh, I know what this needs. And it really made me uncomfortable because when you talk, when you say the word autism, what comes to people's mind is sort of the the guy who can play the piano like a, a total, you know, what would you call it? A prodigy, a total prodigy, but can barely tie his shoes. And for most people who are wired a little differently, there's some measure of that, but you function at a pretty normal level most of the time, except when you run into things that really stress you or really cause you issues. And then you almost turn into a a gibbering ball of of goo or something it's really 
kind of weird. And so looking at the story, I'm like, he's not enough of a person. He needs to be more of a person. What does that? Well, I know, I know what does that. So I went back and I rewrote the story with him having some, some part of, or, you know, some measure of that, that being wired differently in his brain. And it, it mostly comes through in the prologue because that's where he's in this world. And then when he's trans, you know, transported to another world, it's a little different because it, it almost turns into a superpower, but it still sort of carries through the whole time and it becomes the core of his character arc. So to me, that was actually a difficult thing to do because I don't want to turn people off of the story. And that's a big danger with that. And I, I think I did a pretty good job to where the prologue might be a little weird to some people, but after that, it reads fairly normally, but you still understand that you've got this thing going on in the background. How deep were you in the writing process when, when you had that epiphany to, to kind of go back and, and change this character in that way? Oh, I was, I was starting to look back at it instead of just forward toward it. And I don't know about most people, but when I write, I can't do all of it at once. I almost have to put down the main set of events and what the characters do and how it all works out and then kind of go back and change things from each character's perspective to make sure that it's what that character is doing is true to that character. And so when I started looking back instead of just forward, that was when I really started to get that sense that I needed to do that. It was kind of, it was kind of a, oh, this character really needs help. He's the main character and he's kind of flat. And it's because he's, he was almost just a prop at that point going toward a destination. I'm like, no, that's not right. He needs to, he needs to be acting in the world true to himself. And so I went back and I rewrote a whole bunch of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we, we get to a place in our, in our manuscripts where we, where we know our characters more than we did obviously in the beginning. And, and you yep. do have to go through that exercise of, okay, now in this scene, in this situation, I, I know this character more now, they would probably do something a little bit differently or think differently or say something differently. So yep. I get that, that, that absolutely takes a lot of time and it's a big part of the editing process. But just to to introduce like a completely different part of, you know, their their life, um, I just can only imagine like the amount of work that was required. I mean, you're not talking about, you know, changing a character's age or worldview on no. something. You're talking about changing. It's almost the the entire character. And that's actually what ended up happening. I ended up rewriting almost all of the main characters story throughout the whole thing and how he interacted with things and how he reacted to things as I did that. So no, it was a huge amount of work, but I think it was totally worth it in the end because it's, it's a much better story for it. Yeah. So um, tell me about sort of the, the, the end of the writing process. Cause a lot of the people who listen to the show are, are aspiring writers themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, they're, they're always curious about how do I get published? Um, so how do oh, you, that's a how, good question. <laughs> what was your journey like from getting this manuscript down, obviously going back and, and revisiting it 
Um, but then getting it to a place where it's it's ready to you know either be pitched to agents or published independently. What what was your approach? Well, my approach was unlike about anything I've ever heard, and it shouldn't have worked. And in hindsight, I I you know how hindsight's twenty twenty. Man, I tell you, it it's a different road for everybody. So what happened for me was the whole time I was writing this thing, my wife and I were praying, you know, if this is supposed to go somewhere, please, Lord, provide the right, provide the right avenue for this, provide the right publisher, whatever it's got to happen. And so I get to the, I get to where I'm done with about a hundred thousand words. Um, you know, I'm six or seven months in, I've done most of my editing. And there were two people online who I'd never met in person who I asked for help with this one. I asked to be a beta reader and he totally agreed. And he said, you know, he, he was actually one of my best beta readers. He was, he was a big part of the reason it got done because he was my whole cheering section for like two months. And then the other guy I asked, you know, would you read this when I finish? And if you like it, would you recommend it to your followers? He says, yeah, I think I could do that. By the way, you know, my uncle's a publisher, right? I'm like, wait, you, you, no, I didn't know that. Of course, I didn't know that. And so he put me in contact with his mom who works at his uncle's publishing company. And I went through their submission process. And I was accepted on my first submission to any publisher, which they're a small publisher, they're not exactly non traditional, I did get a small advance. Um, so they're not, they're not a vanity publisher. But at the same time, it was a pretty unusual story. And in hindsight, I'm not actually certain it was the best choice. And here's why I say that. There are two or three categories of, what would you call it? Two or three categories of ways to publish. One is self-publish, independent publishing. And if you do that, you have access to a set of resources that are sort of growing up right now. There are a lot of people who are only willing to have independently publish authors or self-published people on their little show. And that it, it has become a whole thing where you, you have this circuit of people who do the independent publishing thing and they support each other. And that's great. Um, but if you go that way, you have to do all of the work yourself and you're doing all of the marketing and, and you got to know what you're getting into, that this is actually going to be a business, not just a book you write, right? So that's the independent publishing. You can kind of go with a small press, which is sort of what I did. And in, in some sense, it's helpful because they, they will push you to do things better than you would have otherwise, like I would not probably have gotten a professional editor and it really helped. So they pushed me to do better than I would have otherwise. And the cover's probably better than it would have been otherwise. And, you know, there's a whole laundry list of things where it helped improve it. So that that's good in some ways, but it also kind of, it means I don't have access to some of those indie circuit things that I would have. And I certainly don't get, any significant amount of marketing from my publisher even now. So I'm still set to do all the marketing myself, whatever I do. And it's only when you get to where you actually already have some amount of sales or you can show that this book's going to be successful, that a bigger publisher will sign you. And 
even then you kind of have to be careful because if you really care about the work, you sign away the copyright in most of those cases. And in my case, I own my copyright. I don't own my imprint, meaning this this printing of the book, this package that is a book is something that my publisher has rights to, but I do own the copyright and nobody can go in and buy movie rights and do whatever they want with it or screw up the story. I have control of that. So you've got pluses and minuses, but whatever you're going to do, if if you are another author, I would say go into this with a realistic understanding that you're going to be responsible for selling your work when you get done with it. And you ought to look into the various ways that you can go about that. And I've learned a lot about that over the past little while, but I tell you what, there is no easy road there. There just isn't. Yeah. And I have to say, even with larger publishers, if you are not a, a big, you know, in air quotes, big author, you know, in their, in their book, um, you know, you're not going to get the same amount of marketing support, you know, as, as you know, the, the, the known commodities, if you will. So you still, actually, I mean, authors. Yeah. Actually, what I would say to that is, is if you, if you don't have a big enough name to be able to leverage some serious uh, political capital, I would stay away from the bigger publishers if you can, because the chances of them actually doing right by you are pretty low where if you if you get a smaller or mid-sized publisher they'll actually help support your backlist where the big publishers just let your work go out of print so be be careful of that a good uh, certainly a good watch out certainly a good watch out but in in both scenarios you know all I'm trying to say is that you know authors are the brunt of marketing is going to be on, you know, the, the newer author's shoulders. And that's something that that I certainly learned. And it's something that a lot of authors come on and tell me, they say, hey, you know, we thought the hard part was writing. And they they realize that the hard part is actually doing all the marketing and support and, and um, you know, things like yeah. this to try and get the word out. Well, the business side of things. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And, and you're right about independent, you know, the, the, the independent route being like running a small business because you are responsible for everything, you know, from everything from finding an editor. If you and, and I always recommend if you go the independent route to hire an external um, editor um, mm-hmm. to cover design to, um, you know, layouts and and getting it, you know, getting yeah, it man. into in, into Amazon and into um uh, you know, all of the, you know, all the, the, the various channels. Um, well, making decisions about which channels you want to pursue because, you know, actually getting your book onto bookstore shelves can be a good thing or it can be a curse. And it depends on a lot of different factors. Yeah. So um, what, what would you say um, is the biggest lesson you've learned going through this process? Um, biggest lesson either into yourself as a writer or just about writing? Well, I think it's dispelled any, um, (laughs) what would I say? Any starry eyed, uh, sort of, what would you call it? When when you when you put something on a pedestal, being a writer to me and no longer is no longer on a pedestal. There's there's nothing there's uh, <laughs> there's I mean, nothing not, particularly not, not. romanticized about it to me now. It's purely a matter of 
you know, how, how many books do I actually have to sell in order to make a significant amount of money and even just pay for the, the, you know, the production process of this book, because that is not an easy job. No, I think there's a big misunderstanding out there that, um, you know, all writers are millionaires and, uh, <laughs> you know, just like the majority of, of working musicians and working actors are all yeah. working other jobs, um, you know, while they pursue their dreams, writers, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, most writers I know, they're still teachers or in the corporate world or lawyers or, or whatever. And they're, they're writing, you know, hopefully eventually one day, maybe they might be able yeah. to make a living off of it, but th that's the exception and not necessarily the rule. Yeah. Pareto distribution, eating our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I look at, um, you know, statements for, uh, like print on demand that I get and, and who's getting most of the profits of, uh, <laughs> Of, yeah. of books. If a book, if I sell a book through through Barnes and Noble, for example, um, which I do, I did distribution through Barnes and Noble. The yeah. the cost to do that is astronomical. Um, you know, a book might retail for thirteen dollars. You know, um, retail, and then if you do the math, you know, you got to give uh, the retailer a fifty five percent discount off list price, and then by the time it's printed and you're paying for the printing. Maybe there's a couple nickels at the end of that one. Uh, yeah, you know that's why you know things like digital distribution for for lesser known authors are typically a better financial um, route. Generally, it is. Yeah, I've been looking into the direct marketing thing some lately. I don't have any. I, I can't say that I've had any success yet, or I haven't actually tried it yet. But that's definitely my next avenue of approach, and hopefully like you say, more success in that going down that avenue. But also if you're going to do that, the thing that I'm learning is that you need like two or three books to really start being able to actually hit, hit any success there either. So, yeah. So uh, I'm curious, Jared, um, if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, you know, maybe it was that 12 year old who was starting, um, starting that mm -hmm. first book. Um, what would you tell your younger self? What kind of words of advice would you give your younger self? Hmm. I think two things, probably first. Don't put yourself in a position where you have to rush things. Make, make it so that you can take your time and get a quality product out for people without being stressed about it. Whatever you have to do, get there. And then the other one would be, and, and this takes a bit of context. I don't know about you, but for me, writing is almost a compulsion. It's something I do kind of because if I don't, I become unwell. That's how Andrew Clavin says it. I'm not a writer because I write things. I'm a writer because if I don't, I become unwell. And it's, that's put pretty well. That's not bad. So what I would say is be consistent. Take time, make time, and be consistent and do it. And 10 years later, you'll look back and you'll be glad you did. Even if what you have only half of it or a quarter of it is something that you want to publish, you'll still be glad you did it because you'll be way better off then than you were at the beginning. Don't try to just dive in and do it overnight. Yeah. Consistency. I'd say consistent and persistent are two 
important qualities and and you're right don't rush something you know let it let it take kind of take its time and and don't rush to put something out there that's not ready yet you know it's like taking mm-hmm. something out of the oven a little bit too early you know no one nobody wins in that scenario no i think you're exactly right um so i'm curious Jared, if people out there want to get in touch with you or learn more about you do you have a website or social media that you're active on that you can share with everybody Absolutely. So uh, you could find me, uh, well, you can find uh, info about the book and the universe at e6universe.com. You can probably grab my email off there if you wanted to get a hold of me. Uh, If you want to find me on social media, the best way is probably at Jared and me show on X, or uh, you can find me at Jared me show author on Facebook. Uh, If you're, (laughs) you probably need to know how to spell the name because it's uh, it's not an easy one. So you probably just want to go to e6universe.com. That's the easy way. Well, I will be sure to put all of those links in, in our show notes so people don't have to worry about spelling. They can just tap on them and, uh, awesome. and find you and find you that way. And Jared, I will say thank you so much for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.